Last week we started talking a little bit about roles in the church and appropriate behavior in the church. And that's always an interesting topic and a controversial topic. But roles are something we're used to, right? If you think about the Yugo team that's going out, they have all kinds of different roles. You have Pastor Andrew leading the team, and you have an assistant leader, and you have a children's ministry leader, and a women's ministry leader, and a sports leader. And, and for, for the team to function well, people function within their roles. And, and lots of communication and things happen, and that's how the gospel is going to go forth. But when we start to talk about roles in the church, it can be a lot more complicated. And, and I appreciated all the discussion this week from last week's sermon and all the different um, ideas and um, different questions that were asked. It can be challenging, unfortunately, because we live in a fallen world. And in a fallen world, there have been so many abuses of roles and abuses of authority that right from the start, the reason it's a controversial issue is because the hair just starts to stand up on the back of our neck because people have abused it. Over the the centuries, there's been abuse of, of minorities and people using control and authority to put them down. There's been a, abuse of women and people using authority and control to lessen their impact and to to treat them as second-class citizens. But we must not let a fallen world stop us from understanding God's plan for the home and God's plan for His church. Our role as believers is to fight a fallen culture, to show that this is not right, rather than succumb to it and react to it. And so we come to the passage today, the second half of the passage that we started last week, and we want to continue talking about roles in the church. And, and what is appropriate for men to do? What is appropriate for women to do? And we shared some stats of some denominations and mainline denominations last week. One of the um, comments that I, that I heard from, from one person, not here, but online, was, well, I, I, I just can't be a pastor. This is from a, a lady. The only reason I can't be a pastor is because I don't have a Y chromosome. And just bucking the roles and bucking what, what Scripture says without understanding why and without fully understanding what is being said. Probably someone that has had some difficult situations and that's been held over their heads in a sinful way. And so we want to come and say, what does God's Word say? How can we understand that? How can we be the church God wants us to be? Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. And I want to start reading with the verses that we went over last week. So we'll start at verse 8 and remind ourselves of the the flow of the passage from last week so we understand where Paul is going. But 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. He's writing to a church that is struggling with some of these role issues where the false teachers have targeted some of the women in the church and deceived some of the women in the church both to abandon their God-given responsibilities and to abandon their faith. But understand the context is also that probably some of the elders are the ones doing the deceiving. So some men have taken positions of authority and have not handled those well. While other men just sat by and let it happen. So just a a situation with all kinds of conflict that Paul addresses both here and throughout the rest of the book. We're going to address all kinds of requirements and and how you deal with each of these situations. But starting with 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling, 
And, and in verse 8, we saw right from the start that men were challenged to engage and lead. And that was our point of men's responsibility. Men were challenged to engage and lead. To lift holy hands in prayer was to take part in the service, was to take part in the worship of God in the service and take a leadership role in that. And that's where it starts. As men, we need to lead and we need to lead well and we need to lead in a godly fashion. Then he goes on in verses 9 and 10 and he starts to speak to women. And we read in 9, Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or in gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. And the first instruction to women for the responsibilities God had given them was draw attention to God, not to self. Draw attention to God, not to self. And the instructions about modesty were those things that would draw attention to themselves that took so much time and actually were copying the the temple prostitutes of the time and some of the dignitaries of the time. And it was an attempt to show worth by what they looked like rather than who they were. And God said, draw attention to me by what you do, by how you serve me, not to yourself by how you look. And then we come to verse uh, verse 11, and today we'll be going through verses 11 to 15. We started to touch on them last week, and we'll finish them this week. But the second point there for, for women's responsibility is to follow well with a sweet and gentle spirit to follow well with a sweet and gentle spirit. Let's start reading at verse 11. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. We'll take those two verses and dig into those a little bit before we go on. And we talked a little bit about verse 11 last week because the the point here is that Paul is instructing instructing women to come under the spiritual authority of the church. To follow that authority well. He is not saying, though, that women are inferior or less significant than men. I put in your notes what our Constitution says about this, because this is an important aspect to understanding this discussion. We believe that there is a created order between man and women. The man was created first, and then the woman from the man. The woman was created as a helper for the man. The biblical order concerns functions and roles, not superiority and inferiority. We believe that there is an absolute equality of man and woman before God. And those last two statements are key in understanding this discussion. We believe in an absolute equality spiritually before God. But God has designed us differently for different roles so that His church and the home functions. Galatians 3.28, verse that's mentioned there at the end of that statement, says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And the point is, all believers are one and equal in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. But that verse doesn't preclude certain roles with masters and employees, with um, all kinds of areas. It doesn't take away those roles. It's, it's, It's a discussion of equality and a discussion of worth and value. 
And so that's the foundation. And in verse 11, the two instructions were let a woman learn quietly and with all submissiveness. And we talked about quiet doesn't mean you can't speak. It doesn't mean an absolute silence as some have taken it and really abused this verse to say. But what it means is that to come peacefully and with a gentle and quiet spirit. Willingly. And so really this instruction is dealing with the attitude that we come to worship in. And specifically women in this case, but really quite frankly all of us as we submit to authority. It's an issue of not causing conflict, not causing trouble, not stirring things up, but coming and honoring God with worship. Second part of verse 11 that we talked about last week was all submissiveness. That a woman should learn quietly and with all submissiveness. And, and remember that she is to learn. And so she's part of the, the, the assembly. She's part of what's going on. But it's dealing with an attitude and how that happens. And all, submission, all submissiveness, to be submissive in this case, is to line up under authority. To say, I'll follow you. I'll follow you. I love it when I watch kids play follow the leader because some will, will follow well and they'll copy everything that happens. And you always have one or two that are like, I'm not following them. I'm going off my own way. I'm doing my own thing. And, and the word for submissive here is to follow the leader, to, to willingly and, and helpfully come under their authority. And so Paul says, this is the attitude that I want women to have in worship. It's a word that I mentioned is used of a lot of different relationships in the church, of husband and wife, of Jesus to God the Father, of us to Jesus as head of the church. And so Paul in verse 11 is saying, have an attitude of respect, an attitude of submission to come under. There were probably so many situations in Ephesus, it looks as if from... from later in, in First and Second Timothy, where the women were being encouraged to rebel against male leadership, to rebel against some of the abuses that had been happening. And Paul is saying, no, the, the answer isn't to rebel, it's to have the leaders lead appropriately and come under them in a godly way. So God has instituted an order of leadership. And in verse 11, he's presenting that. In verse 12, this is where we go on from where we were last week. In verse 12, this leads to some limitations in the church body. The the principle of of learning quietly and submissiveness leads to some natural limitations and some natural instructions for the church body. Some roles that God has created to create order, to create a responsibility of leadership. If you look at it in a literary sense, verse 12 is really an explanation of verse 11. It comes out of verse 11 and and it's an example of what it means to learn quietly and with all submissiveness. And he gives us two limitations on the church body. Publicly teaching men is limited to men. Publicly teaching men is limited to men. In verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. It's a hard verse. It's a hard, a hard discussion that the church is wrestling with. And some have said, well, at the beginning it says, I do not permit. And said, well, that's just Paul's opinion here. But he's using wording that is an apostolic authority. He's saying, no, this is an instruction for the church 
and how the church should function. Others have said, well, Paul's just wrong here. This is an error in God's Word. And you know from our discussion of inerrancy of Scripture that we won't go there. We just won't go there because God's Word is true. It is infallible. It is accurate. But what it's saying is, is Paul is saying there is an order to how God has created things. And in that order, men should teach men. Women are not to teach men. Because teaching has a role of authority. And the word there that's used for teaching is a word that always has to do with a change in life, a change in behavior. And so it's not just passing on information, it's, it's hopefully encouraging transformation. And if someone is coming and saying, you should do this, or you should do this, or you should do this, this is what God's Word, how it applies to your life, that is an aspect of authority. Flip over to 1 Timothy 4.11. 1 Timothy 4.11. Paul's instructing Timothy of what he should be doing in the church. Short verse, command and teach these things. Command and teach these things. And we see the idea of authority mixed with teaching. In the section immediately following what we're studying now, because next week we get into limitations on men and limitations on leadership for men, in this section, it... it it goes point by point and says, this is what a man that manages the church should look like. This is what uh, an elder should look like. And in verse 2, at the end, it says he should be able to teach. A qualification that isn't in the deacon qualifications because it's part of the authority of leading the church. In 1 Timothy 5.17, Paul says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And so throughout the book, preaching and teaching are tied with authority and passing on God's Word in an authoritative way. And so if Paul has just said that, that women in the church should learn quietly and in submissiveness to the church leaders, then what comes out of that is, is a limitation on teaching men. Because that is taking authority Think in terms of, of even if, if a woman was teaching and a, a woman was teaching in the church and her husband was sitting in class. If that is a position of authority, now the roles have reversed and she's in a position of authority over her husband. And so that's one of the, the reasons and one of the implications of this why Paul says, no, this is a legitimate limitation in the church. He goes on in that verse to say not only a limitation on teaching, but that he does not allow a woman to exercise authority over a man. This is the broader principle of the two. The two are closely tied together. And so having authority over men is limited to men. And again, this is, this is challenging for us to say, okay, how does this work itself out? How, how is this applied in the church? Some have, have argued and, and have tried to say, well, that word for authority means to usurp authority or to take authority, to grasp authority. The new NIV that the just recently came out says to assume authority. And they made a decision that this was a word that was saying to inappropriately take authority from a man. The problem is, is that really isn't what the word means. The word, is, it's only used here in the New Testament but in all of the extra-biblical or the other passages they found it in, it simply means to have authority. 
to exercise authority. And in fact, it's tied closely with teaching. And so if teaching is not a negative word, then the having of authority, or it can't be a grasping of authority. It has to be just a, a positive exercising of authority. Now, now, one note as we look at this, this is talking specifically to within the church. This is talking about worship in the church, how the household of God should behave. It's not saying that women can't own companies or lead companies or do things outside of the body of Christ, but this is very specific to talking to within the body of Christ. And this is not an issue of worth. He's saying that men and women are different with different roles and different strengths. And praise God we're different. If we weren't different, we wouldn't need each other. And, and, and the idea that we're, we're not different or that somehow there's not different roles actually destroys the worth of one of the, the sides. And God's Word is saying, no, I've created both to need each other, to support each other with specific roles and with specific abilities. And he's tasked men with the responsibility of leadership, which is a heavy responsibility. And he's tasked women with coming in line under that leadership in the church. In verse 12, he ends with same, same thing he started with in 11. They sort of form an envelope around these, this concept. She is not to exercise authority over man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Again, it's the same word, free from disturbance. Showing a teachable attitude. Think for a minute about some of the, the women in our own church that are just godly and wise women. We are blessed with so many women that are wonderful examples, that are, are, are saints. And if you think of the women that we, we respect and we view as godly women, it's always the women that practice these passages. It's the women that, that encourage and support and fulfill what God has for them without needing to grasp authority, without trying to hold that over anyone. And I was just thinking through many of you women that are here and the respect that I have for your walk with God because of that. The way that you show an appropriate attitude towards authority, resisting the urge to take charge, Thank you for that. It's a wonderful testimony. And it's a challenge here in Ephesus because they were being taught by some of the false teachers to not even get married. Why would you get married? Then, then you have to be, be submissive to your husband. Women were targeted to be deceived and they were the first line of attack on so many of the false teachers. So much that Paul, and we'll get to this passage in a few weeks, advised the widows and the young to, to get married, to be about their responsibilities, to take care of your family. So Paul in 11 and 12 gives the idea that women are to come under leadership in the church with a sweet and gentle spirit, to willingly follow their spiritual leaders, to understand there's limitations in the church body that we all should understand. And the challenge with this the lie that we've been taught is that leadership equals significance. And that is simply not true. 
It, you don't have to be up here standing on the platform to have significance. In fact, every person in this room has significance in the body of Christ when we exercise our gifts and God uses those to minister. But Satan has, has propagated this lie that you have to be in leadership, you have to be in charge to be significant. And it is absolutely not true. In fact, leadership is far more about responsibility, about who's going to be held accountable, and who's going to be disciplined if it doesn't work out by God. And it's a challenge. So does this ban women from all ministry in the church? Does it ban women from all teaching? question that I heard throughout the week is, okay, so what can we do? What, what are you really saying? And, and what is God's Word really saying here? And it's important to understand it does not ban all ministry. And it does not ban all teaching. We have examples throughout Scripture of women actively involved in the church over and over and over again in significant roles. It's just a limitation of one particular type of role. In 1 Corinthians 11.5, Paul is dealing with some of the same issues at the church at Corinth, and he's instructing them about male and female responsibilities in worship. And he says, But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. And he's talking about in the church body, women praying and prophesying. And we're not going to get into what prophesying means, and we can focus on the head covering here, and that's a whole other discussion too. But it's interesting to note that Paul is saying that women are participating in the service. He's saying that women are are able to pray and to prophesy in the Spirit or in the service. And so that's an affirmation that he's not saying they, they shouldn't come or they should be separated away, which was the culture of the time. Turn to Acts 18. Acts 18, 24. In Acts 18, 24, we see Apollos who has not heard completely the Gospel, and he's going around and teaching an effective teacher. And in 1824, we see what happens. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he only knew the baptism of John. So he had an incomplete knowledge. And then read what happens. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And so this husband and wife team say, Apollos, come on over for lunch. Let's talk. And they they sit him down and they explain the rest of the gospel. And so what we see here is a husband and wife, a man and a woman, teaching privately outside of the official office of teacher. Priscilla had to know the Gospel. She had to be knowledgeable. And they together taught Apollos. But it wasn't in the official office of teacher. A very different setting. In Titus 2, 3-5, another passage that we've studied, Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much, what, much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husband, that the Word of God may not be reviled. And so we see that women were to teach other women. 
In fact, I would argue that this verse is saying that women should be the primary teacher of other women, just as men should be of men. And that we have a very similar limitation or a similar teaching in that passage. There's nothing like an older woman that has been through it that can come alongside a younger woman and say, I know your child screams for weeks on end. And then you haven't slept for months on end, but it will pass. And here's what helped me. And an older woman can teach a younger woman in a way I can't, just as an older man can teach a younger man in a way a woman can't. And so throughout Scripture, we see the role of women actually lifted up. In 2 Timothy 1.5, turn there, it's just a couple pages from where we are. 2 Timothy 1.5. Paul is talking to Timothy and he says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. And we know from this and a couple other passages that Timothy's own mother and his grandmother taught him. And so we see one of the things that, that women were doing was teaching their children, teaching their household. In this case, Timothy's father was a Greek, probably not saved at this point. So his mother and grandmother are teaching him in the way of the Lord. Women throughout the church are encouraged to use their gifts. In 1 Corinthians 12.7, we see that. In 1 Peter 4.10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. And I share all those verses because that's where a lot of questions came of, okay, does this mean we're worthless? No. Absolutely not. It means there's some, some specific limitations, and we're going to see limitations on men next week, that are directed, directly, directly related to God's creative order and how He intends His church to, to function. And in fact, that when we go outside of those, the church fails to function and risks disaster. And so we get to verses 13 and 14. And the point there is reversing God's created roles leads to disaster. Reversing God's created roles leads to disaster. And Paul here goes back to a biblical appeal to a foundation from creation and from the fall. In verse 13, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And and Paul here is referencing the idea of the firstborn, that the firstborn had more responsibilities. And, And in Jewish culture, they would have understood that. Whoever was firstborn, if something happened to mom and dad, they got to take care of the family. They had to take care of the family. They had to take on all the debt. They had to take on all the work. That was their responsibility. And so the the first appeal is that Adam was formed first. There's a priority of responsibility, of headship there. And as God formed Adam first, He formed him in a way to be able to accomplish that responsibility. Now, can this be abused? Absolutely. I watched one of my kids, who happens to be the eldest, sometimes go around and say, well, I'm the oldest. You have to obey me. We're, we're going to read some verses that say, don't, don't lead that way. <laughs> Just don't even go there. Because you can predict how the other two respond. Things are thrown, doors are slammed, 
kids are, you know, there's wrestling matches if it's between the two boys. But Mark is already understanding that there is a certain responsibility with being the firstborn. And he says that sometimes when, when we're out of the room or something, he goes, man, I, I need to keep things together. We don't leave him at home alone yet. Please don't call, call Child Protective Services. <laughs> he's eight. But he's understanding that there's a role that, that comes with that position as firstborn. That is, is Paul's argument here from before the fall. Some people say, well, the fall caused all of these roles and calls all the... No, no, God created the roles and responsibility. The fall has perverted them. So he says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And then he goes on in verse 14, one of the more difficult verses and abused verses in my opinion. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Anyone read that and the hairs start to go up on the back of your neck a little bit? What does it sound like? It's all Eve's fault. And, and some of you are saying, is that what he's going to say? That is not what I'm going to say this morning. We know that that's not what Paul is saying because over and over in Scripture, Paul blames Adam. For as by one man sin entered the world and death by sin... Okay, so, so there's... What, that's, so we know from comparing Scripture to Scripture that that is not what Paul is saying here. So what is he saying? And I would suggest we go back to Genesis and actually look at the passages he's referencing to try to understand what he's saying. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. And we, we begin to see what happens when roles are reversed. I'm sorry, let's, Genesis chapter 3. Let's go there. One chapter over. And we have the story of the fall. Now the serpent was more crafty than the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And catch verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one eyes, one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. You get the first act there. Eve decides on her own, without talking with Adam, without coming under his headship that God has created, this is good, I'm going to eat. But then catch the next phrase, guys, that doesn't let us off the hook. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And there's been all kinds of discussion, but the Hebrew here, the natural reading, is that he was standing there and he let it happen. And he abdicated his role as protector of his family and watched this happen and let this happen. And so we see a role reversal. Both were out of line. Was it Eve's fault? Yes. Was it Adam's fault? Yes. Just as I would argue any of us might have done in that same situation. Because we can also just blame them and say, well, we wouldn't have sinned. Yeah, we would have. 
but it was a reversal of roles. And we get to the, the curse a little bit later. So God comes and seeks them out and they say, well, we, we hid from you and we weren't sure who it was. And then you come down to verse 14. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock. And he goes through the curse to the, the serpent. Then in verse 16, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. And your desire shall be for your husband or against your husband, for his position. You will struggle against the roles. And he shall rule over you. And then to Adam in verse 17, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten to the tree. He gives an explanation here. And he says, because you did not take your role of leader seriously and you didn't protect your wife and you listened to her, she became the teacher of the man and the roles were reversed, you will be cursed. And so Paul's coming back to the very, the very first sin, the fall and in saying that Eve was deceived, he's saying that she was, was under the, the, the talk of the serpent. She was deceived by the, per, the serpent. When he says Adam wasn't deceived, the idea that, that most would say is that the idea is that it was intentional. He was culpable. That he knowingly let this happen. Does the verse read a little differently now? It's not saying women are stupid and that they are deceived and men aren't. It's saying God has created roles and, and Adam should have been protecting her and he's been designed as a protector and she didn't fall under that and he didn't do it. The blame's on both of them. And so that is Paul's argument for roles within the church. From creation. From how God intended it and equipped us to be. And that's challenging. It's convicting for me as a man to read. Convicting of if I protect my wife, if I come, come and, and help her in that way. And as Susie and I have talked, I know it's convicting to women too. Have we, have you responded to leadership in that way? And it should convict both of us. And it should step on our toes. And it should challenge us to be the church with the roles and responsibilities that God has designed into us. And finally in verse 15, jumping back to 1 Timothy. Because this is another difficult verse that I want to spend a little bit of time explaining. Verse 15 says, Yet she shall be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Very confusing verse. Let me just try to explain it briefly. It starts by Paul's talking about Eve still as representative of, of all of, for all women. So it starts with the singular, yet she shall be saved through childbearing, talking about Eve as representative. And then he, he makes that clear by saying, if they continue in faith and love and holiness. And one of the keys in this verse is what does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to be saved? And there's three different ways that that Greek word is used. One is spiritual salvation. And, and so some have said this means that women can only go to heaven if they have kids. That is not what this verse is saying. We know that from Paul's other writings when he says 
that the only way to heaven, the only way to eternal life is by repenting of our sins and believing on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. There is no other way for men or women. So we can cross out that option for this this, um, word. Another option is physically saved. Same word that the disciples used as the, the boat's about to sink of the storm on the Sea of Galilee. And the disciples say, Lord, save us. They're not worried about spiritual salvation there. Sorry, they just want to live. And so this could mean physical salvation or physical life. The difficulty with that is we know many godly women have died during childbirth. So does this, did this promise not apply to them? And so that's not a way that we can read this word either. The third way that this word is often used is to protect or to preserve, to keep someone safe. And that's the way we should understand it in this verse. Yet she shall be preserved or kept safe through childbearing. And the, the idea of childbearing is, is, is a broad word that means raising a family, being about her responsibilities, being about what God has given her. And so what Paul is doing here is he's bringing her back, he's bringing women back to their God-given responsibilities. And saying, this is how you, your, this is how you will prove your godliness, that you will enhance your godliness is by being about the things that God has asked you to be about. Now the challenge there is, does that mean if you're not married, or if you don't have kids, you're out of luck? No, and we see that in 1 Timothy 5.10. I'll read that for you because we're out of time. When he's talking about widows that no longer have a family, He's saying, and having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, there's the family side, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, has devoted herself to every good work. And we see Paul saying that childbearing isn't just in the physical sense. Raising a family, it also means caring for the church family. Caring for the saints, showing hospitality, washing feet. And so, and yet she shall be saved through childbearing. She shall be kept. She will show her faith by taking care of her family and by taking care of the church family. And we see that if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. It's how she does that. To take care of them well. It's not saying that women can't work, that women can't have a career but it's saying, remember the significance of the home. Remember the significance of the home. There is no other role more significant than raising children to love God, to serve God, to follow them, to follow Him, to disciple them. Where do we find significance? Lots has been written about that. How do you find your identity? How do you find significance? There is no shame in raising a godly family. There is honor. There is prestige. There is eternal ramifications when you raise a godly family. Don't ever let that go. I'd like to end before we go into communion with a quote from Elizabeth Elliot from a book, a collection of letters she had written to her daughter. She says, But there are those 
to whom being a woman is nothing more than an inconvenience, to be suffered because it is unavoidable and to be ignored if at all possible. Their lives are spent pining to be something else. Every creature of God is given something that could be called an inconvenience, I suppose. Depending on one's perspective, the elephant and the mouse might each complain about his size, the turtle about his shell, the bird about the weight of his wings. But elephants are not called upon to run behind wainscots. Mice will not be found pacing along as though they have an appointment at the end of the world. Turtles have no need to fly, nor birds to creep. The special gift and ability of each creature defines its special limitations. And as the bird easily comes to terms with the necessity of bearing wings, when it finds that it is, in fact, the wings that bear the bird up, away from the world, into the sky, into freedom, so the woman who accepts the limitations of womanhood finds in those very limitations her gifts, her special calling, wings, in fact, which bear her up into perfect freedom, into the will of God. What a perspective from a godly woman. It's not about limitations. It's about being what God wants us to be. We're going to see the same thing the next two weeks when we talk about limitations placed on men in leadership in the church. It's about being who God has created us and wants us to be.